This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. Um, so uh, this, uh, this whole project is called Deference Mistakes. Um, it's actually uh, research that I published in the University of Chicago Law Review. So it's Chicago's best idea squared. Um, although I have to confess it was jointly authored with Lisa Wallet from Stanford University. I don't know if Stanford is claiming credit for any of the good ideas or just the mediocre ideas. And you guys can decide which is which. Um, okay, so... Uh, I'm going to talk about the least sexy topics in all of law, and I'm going to try to make them interesting. Uh, and those topics are standards of review and burdens of proof. And for those of you who are 1Ls and may not have uh, encountered these before, a standard of review is just the standard that an appellate court uses when it's reviewing the work of a district court. So the trial court makes some decision, somebody wins or loses the case, the loser appeals, and now the appellate court is going to review that decision. And the question is, what is the standard they're going to apply? And that standard could be anything from de novo. De novo means sort of we're going to do it all over again from new. Uh, and the appellate court will just make its own decision. All the way to uh, we're going to provide a lot of deference to that lower court, to that trial court. We're going to give them the benefit of the doubt. So only if what they did was an abuse of discretion or clear error, or plain error, or something like that. Only then will we overturn their decision. A burden of proof is just the burden that one of the parties in a case has to meet. So sometimes you just have to prove your case by preponderance of the evidence. If you want to prove that somebody was negligent for purposes of a tort lawsuit, you just have to prove that they were negligent by a preponderance of the evidence. 50% plus one, that you're right and they're wrong. Um, but sometimes the burden is higher. Sometimes you have to prove something by substantial evidence. You know, you, the real weight of the evidence has to be on your side, or maybe even clear and convincing evidence or something like that. So that's how we think of, um, that, those, that's what standards of review and burdens of proof are. And usually when we talk about standards of review and burdens of proof and them being different, we talk about factual versus legal questions. That's the distinction you guys are going to get in your Bigelow class, I think, later this quarter, those of you who are 1Ls. Factual questions are typically reviewed for um, abuse of discretion or some other higher deferential standard on the theory that the trial court, they saw the witnesses in front of them. They got to judge the witness's demeanor, so you know, we'll review them with deference. Legal questions are reviewed de novo. The trial court doesn't have any special experience deciding questions of law. The appellate court is just as good, as not, if not better. So the appellate court's going to review all the district court's questions de novo, meaning no deference at all. We're just going to think about it ourselves and decide whether we agree with what you guys did or not. So that's typically how we think about standards of review, burdens of proof, that kind of stuff. Um, the key to this paper, the key to this idea, is that there are lots and lots of legal questions that can arrive at courts of appeals under two different standards of review or two different burdens of proof, depending on how the case arises. So there are lots and lots of examples. I'm just going to focus on three for the purposes of lunch today. Um, first is criminal procedure, the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendments, the constitutional protections against unreasonable searches and seizures, protections against compelled confessions, uh, you know, requirement that you're allowed to have a lawyer. If you, one in one, one fashion in which that question can arise is just a court has to decide, do you have the certain right? Does that right actually exist? Um, which is like a de novo question. We're just asking, does the right exist? And that happens when there's a direct appeal. So if you just, if you were just locked up and it's the middle of your criminal case and you're arguing to the trial court that the police took evidence in violation of the Fourth Amendment, that court is just going to ask, 
does the right exist? And if you lose and you appeal to the appellate court, that court's just going to ask, does the right that you're asserting exist? Does the Fourth Amendment work the way you say it works? That's all the, that's all the court is going to inquire into. However, under certain circumstances, the court will ask a second question, a bigger question, which is, is that right clearly established by existing Supreme Court precedent? So it's not just, do I think that's how the Fourth Amendment should work? It's, has the Supreme Court already said clearly that that's how the right does work? And that happens in the context of either habeas petitions. Habeas is when you're already locked up, and now you're filing a petition saying that there was something wrong with your conviction and you deserve to be let out. Or Section 1983. 1983 is uh, basically a tort suit, a constitutional tort suit, where you argue that someone, often a police officer or maybe a prosecutor or other, some other state official, has violated your rights and you deserve money damages. So if you're just in the middle of your own criminal trial, people are just asking, does the constitutional right exist? If you're in the context of a habeas petition or a Section 1983 petition, then we're asking not only does the right exist, but was the right clearly established already by Supreme Court precedent? Evidentiary decisions work pretty much the same way. In some cases, the court will ask, was the, was the decision to admit or exclude... Oh, so let me, let, let me set the stage. So you're at trial. You um, try to introduce some piece of evidence. The court says no. You lose. You appeal. And one of the things you're appealing is that the district court was wrong to exclude your evidence. Um, sometimes the appellate court will ask, was it an abuse of discretion for the court to exclude your evidence? And that's when the losing party preserved the objection, when they got up at trial and said, Your Honor, this is outrageous. You have to let this evidence in. Other times, the court will ask whether it was plain error to admit or exclude evidence. Plain error, a much more deferential standard. Everyone sort of established that plain error is a harder standard to meet than merely abuse of discretion, even though they both sound kind of deferential. And that happens when you didn't object at trial. The court excludes some piece of evidence or maybe admits some piece of evidence, and you just let it go. You don't bother to make an argument. If you want to later argue to the appellate court that it should have been admitted, plain error, much higher standard. Um, comes up as well uh, in an area that I do a lot of work in, in patent law, and the question of patent validity. So if you're trying to get a patent or if you're suing someone under a patent, oftentimes there'll be some party on the other side arguing that your patent is invalid. Sometimes the question is, is your patent invalid by the preponderance of the evidence? And that's an issue when you're appealing from the Patent and Trademark Office because the Patent and Trademark Office did not get you a patent, give you a patent. So you don't have a valid patent yet, and you are trying to get one, and you're just arguing it's valid, and I only have to show it's valid uh, by 50 plus 1. Other times, if you want to prove that a patent is invalid, you have to prove that it's invalid by clear and convincing evidence. So a preponderance of the evidence is not sufficient. Clear and convincing evidence. And that comes up when you already have a patent and you are suing someone with that patent. You're arguing that they've infringed your patent and they should pay you money, so you're suing them. They're defending themselves by arguing that your patent is invalid. But here, because you already have a patent, the courts will give some deference to the Patent and Trademark Office who granted you that patent in the first place. And the party that's asserting invalidity has to prove invalidity by clear and convincing evidence. So something more than just preponderance of the evidence. Okay. These things matter. These standards are not the same, obviously. Does the right exist is not the same thing as is it clearly established by Supreme Court precedent. Abuse of discretion is not the same thing as plain error. And preponderance of the evidence is not the same thing as clear and convincing evidence. These are very different standards, importantly different. Okay, and I'm going to sort of illustrate it graphically. So imagine that you've got an evidence case here, and you are, um, you, you had your... Uh, your 
you tried to get some evidence admitted at trial. Trial court denied it. Now you're appealing and arguing that the trial court should have allowed you to admit that evidence. And you're looking back for precedent. So you're trying to find old cases that will support your argument. There could be some, so imagine all these precedents sort of on a continuum from, you know, the best precedents over here, the stronger precedents, to the weaker precedents, the less good precedents over here. These red dots, just imagine those as two precedents. Those are two cases you could draw upon. One of those cases used an abuse of discretion standard. That was the standard at issue in that case. One of those cases used a plain error standard. That was the standard that was used in that case. The case with the plain error standard is going to be a stronger precedent for you than the case with the abuse of discretion standard, all other things being equal. And the reason is because it's harder for you to win under a plain error standard. So if you can find a case where a party that's like you won under a plain error standard, that's huge. That's an enormously powerful precedent for you because they overcame this great hurdle. Whereas if you find a case where a party like you won under an abuse of discretion standard, that's a good precedent, but not as good because it's not as high of a burden for them to meet. And it's the same thing if the cases, if the, the party that was appealing lost in both cases. If the other side shows up with a case where a party just like you lost under an abuse of discretion standard, that's pretty bad. That's the lower standard, and you still weren't, the party just like you still wasn't able to meet it. But if the other side shows up with a precedent where a party like you lost under a plain air standard, that's not nearly as powerful for them. It's better for you. It's a stronger precedent for you, the appealing party because that plain error standard, that's a really, really high bar. And so the fact that that earlier party couldn't meet that standard, maybe that doesn't tell you very much. So I'll do the same thing with patent law. Same story, right? You're at trial. You've been sued. You're trying to invalidate the patent. You're looking for precedents under which similar patents have been invalidated. If you've got a precedent where a similar patent was invalidated under a clear and convincing standard, that's a really powerful precedent because a patent, like the one in your lawsuit, was invalidated under a very high threshold. Somebody met that very high threshold. Court said that was good enough. If it's just a preponderance uh, precedent, that's pretty good, but it's not as good because somebody met only a lower threshold and you probably have a higher burden to meet. So same way if they lost in those cases. So the, the precedent under the more demanding standard is always better, it's always stronger, which means that a decision under the more demanding standard doesn't necessarily tell you what a decision would be like under the less demanding standard. So look, if a right is not clearly established, if a court says that right is not clearly established, that doesn't mean that the right does not exist. It doesn't mean that it's clearly not established. Um, it might be. That court might have decided, had it had the case in front of it without that high burden, it might have decided, sure, this right should exist. It's just deciding this more difficult question, this more, this more uh, burdensome question, is the right clearly established? Similarly, a court that upholds an evidentiary decision from a trial court under a plain error standard they wouldn't necessarily uphold it under an abuse of discretion standard. We don't know. They might have come to the opposite conclusion if the standard had been lower. And if there's not clear and convincing evidence that a patent is invalid, if you can't meet that clear and convincing burden, that doesn't mean that you couldn't meet a preponderance of the evidence burden. It might be that if that court were considering the same patent with the same evidence on the same facts, but the standard was preponderance of the evidence, it would decide in favor of you. So, these things matter. You have to keep it straight. So if you're a judge and you're looking back at old precedents, or if you're a law clerk and you're looking back at old precedents, you've got to look not just at what 
the outcome of the case was, did the patent holder win or lose? Did the person trying to get the evidence in win or lose? You've got to look at the standard that was operating in that case, because that standard tells you how strong of a precedent it was. Okay, none of this is supposed to be the interesting part yet, I promise. So, but, but this is important, because you're not going to understand anything else if you don't understand this. So let me actually pause and just ask if this is clear, if there are any questions uh, that I can answer to clear up anything so far. Okay, great. So you've got to understand the standard you're operating under. You have to know what was the standard in that earlier case. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's trivially easy. Just read the case and it will tell you what the standard is. Who would make a mistake like that? I hope you're thinking to yourself, what kind of law clerk or what kind of judge would make that kind of mistake? And my answer is lots of them. Okay, so here are all the examples. We have a million examples in the paper. I'm going to give you a limited set of examples. All right, so here's, these are constitutional criminal procedure cases, not clearly established versus clearly not established. Here's the Eighth Circuit in 2003. There's no clearly established Supreme Court law which holds that due process requires a jury trial. Sounds perfectly reasonable, but along comes the Minnesota Court of Appeals two years later. The Eighth Circuit has held that this right does not exist, citing Poole versus uh, Goodnow. And then the First Circuit in 2010, the claim to a jury trial right in civil commitments has been rejected, citing Poole versus Goodnow. No, it hasn't. No, it hasn't. This court said that there's no clearly established right. These courts just plainly misread the case. It's nothing more or less than misreading the earlier case as, as if it said that the right doesn't exist when the case didn't say that at all. So this is what we call a deference mistake. This court, there was some amount of deference going on here. It wasn't just, does the right exist? It was, is the right clearly established? Because we're going to give some deference to the state actor, the police officer, the judge, etc. in that case. These cases just failed to recognize the deference standard that was being used in this case. And in so doing, they made a deference mistake. They made a mistake not about the holding of this case, but about the standard, the deference standard operating in that case. Okay, so that's criminal procedure. Uh, Here's plain error versus abuse of discretion in, uh, in evidence cases. So U.S. versus Ristine, again, the Eighth Circuit. I don't know why it's always the Eighth Circuit. Um, this court even says, were we reviewing this condition for an abuse of discretion, we might be forced to select a line of reasoning we might find more compelling, but the standard here is plain error. So they look, they even come out and say, if this were an abuse of discretion case, we might say X, but because it's a plain error case, we have to say Y. Perfectly reasonable, nothing wrong with them saying that, except along comes the Eighth Circuit again in 2013. This is just like it was in Ristine, so we've got to reject it also, even though the standard in that case was abuse of discretion. So it's not just like Ristine. This was a plain error case. This is an abuse of discretion case. This court says if it were an abuse of discretion case, it might have come out differently. This court ignores that. Um, patent law. So clear and convincing evidence versus preponderance of the evidence. Uh, okay, so here's a federal circuit. This is the federal circuit, the Court of Appeals for Patent Law. Somebody's trying to invalidate a patent. Court says, does not meet the clear and convincing hurdle for invalidity, despite the fact that they have a really good argument. They're basically saying, this is a really good argument. You have a really good argument that that patent is invalid, but it's not quite good enough to get to the clear and convincing hurdle. Perfectly reasonable thing to say, except then... This case and that idea get cited in case after case after case. And the reason I'm just providing the citations is because PTAB stands for Patent Trial and Appeals Board. These are cases being held within the PTO adjudicating whether somebody should get a patent in the first instance. So these are all preponderance of the evidence cases. And they're all patents that are just like this one. So all these courts are saying, 
well, this Federal Circuit said that the person didn't deserve a patent, so we don't think they deserve a patent either. Or sorry, the Federal Circuit said they did deserve a patent, and we think that they deserved a patent also. But here the standard was clear and convincing, and here the standard is preponderance. Mistake after mistake after mistake. There are actually about 30 of these citations. I include three because the slide only has so much space in it. So these mistakes happen all the time. They are all over the place. They get made in all kinds of different areas of law. I'm just talking about three. I'm just talking about constitutional criminal procedure and evidentiary decisions and patent law. You know, those are pretty different so that you can tell it spans a broad spectrum of law. We, in the paper, talk about lots of other areas like employment discrimination, you name it, et cetera, et cetera. These errors get made constantly. Courts are constantly being uncareful about what they're doing and creating problems like this. Okay, here's the bigger problem, the next bigger problem. The problem is that if you make one of these mistakes, one deference mistake, it can get laundered such that no one will ever again figure out that it's a deference mistake, and now it just sort of becomes part of the law. So here's how it works. Step one, court number one, the first court says, that right is not clearly established. Supreme Court has not said that the right is clearly established. Court number two says, hey, court number one says that the right does not exist, so we agree as a matter of precedent that the right does not exist. That's a deference mistake. They're misunderstanding what court number one said. And then court number three comes along and says, well, court number two said the right does not exist, so the right doesn't exist. That's not really a deference mistake. They're correctly reading what court number two did. It's just that court number two made this mistake, and that mistake has now been laundered. It's instantiated in law. And if the next person comes along and just looks at this decision, court number three's decision, they'll never catch it. They'll never understand that a deference mistake was being made. You'd have to trace the line of precedent all the way back to court number one to figure out that there was actually a deference mistake at work. So I'll just go back to one of these examples. This example... So pool, pool is the, uh, here's where the deference mistake occurs. From pool to, so this is like court number one. Court number one says right is not clearly established. Here are two versions of court number two making deference mistakes. If the next first circuit case just comes along and cites U.S. versus Carta and says, oh, you don't have this constitutional right, and then everyone just cites that first circuit case, they'll never catch the deference mistake. They'll never see that it ever existed. They'll never notice that someone back in the line of precedent made a mistake and misunderstood what Poole versus Goodnow was actually saying. Okay. So precedents get laundered. They become part of the law. Um, now, this is not the end of the problems. The next problem is that the law can move over time. You can shift the law just because of these types of mistakes. So uh, I'm going to try to diagram this out. So let's say, let's just do, I'm going to do this all through patent law. Let's say you're trying to invalidate a patent, and there's a party trying to make an argument that the patent's invalid. And let's say, you know, this is the continuum showing you how strong, how good that argument is. So better arguments on this side, less good arguments over here on the left. And let's say the court has some sort of threshold. Like if you're to the right, patent gets declared invalid. If you're to the left, patent is considered valid. So really strong over here where you have a really strong argument, then you get the patent declared invalid on a preponderance of the evidence standard. So let's somebody brings, say, brings a case here under a clear and convincing standard. Well, they exceeded the threshold, but it's not a preponderance case. It's a clear and convincing case. So the court's got to give a little bit of deference. So maybe the court says, no, you don't succeed in invalidating the patent because of the clear and convincing standard, we're going to say that patent is valid. If the next court comes along and doesn't realize that this was a clear and convincing case, 
Instead, it thinks it was a preponderance of the evidence case. It's going to think, oh, wow, look, the court's threshold moved. Now you have to have a really good argument. So now we have a new threshold. Now the law shifts. Because the court thought, oh, this was, this was a preponderance precedent, and the court said that wasn't good enough. So it must be that you have to be at least that strong. Your argument has to be at least that good before you can invalidate the patent. It can go the other way also. So let's say you bring this case, and it's brought under a preponderance standard, and uh, you win. You invalidate the patent. Let's say you invalidate the patent because it's better than the threshold. But if somebody else thought that was under a clear and convincing standard, they would have thought, wow, you know, Clear and convincing, you know, you usually have to be well clear of the line to win under a clear and convincing standard. And here, you know, that case was just about here. That wasn't the strongest argument in the world. So the fact that they won, the line must be much further back than we realized. We thought that it was harder to win. You know, you had to cross this line. But it must be actually easier to win than we thought. You must have had to cross that line instead. So wins can move the law one direction, and losses can move the law the other direction. Um, or actually, a better way of saying it is, if you confuse one type of standard for another, you can move the law one direction, and if you, make the reverse, uh, if you confuse it in the reverse direction, you can move the law the other direction. Um, so I have lots of charts about that, which I'm going to skip, I think. Um, okay, but basically, so here's, maybe here's the important one. Every time a court treats a deferential precedent as non-deferential, so that means every time a court sees a, like, a clearly established precedent, and thinks that it's just a does-the-right-exist precedent, the law gets worse for the party trying to assert the right. Because the next court, the court that comes along and says, you know, it's harder to win under the clearly established precedent, so if, uh, a clearly established standard. So if you're, if you're a person trying to establish a constitutional right, and you have to establish that it's clearly established, that's harder to do. And so if you lose, you want the next court that looks at that precedent to realize well, they lost, but they lost under a really high standard. So if the next court looks at your presidential case and thinks, well, they lost, but they lost under the usual standard, that's bad for you. That court's making an inference about the law that's harmful, that's detrimental to what you're trying to accomplish. So uh, deferential precedents that are mistaken as non-deferential, the law gets worse for the party asserting the right. But if it's the other way around, right? If you lost under a clear and convincing uh, sorry, if you lost under a normal precedent, like suppose that um, you were just trying to assert a constitutional right and the court says that right does not exist. And then the next court comes along and let's say that next court makes an egregious error and thinks, you know, that case that was just decided, that precedent that I'm reading on Westlaw right now, that's not saying that the right doesn't exist. That's saying that the right's not clearly established. Well, that's good. That's good for the person who wants to assert that right because it's like they've been, uh, the, the loss has been sort of mitigated or va cleaned up for them. It's not, that they, it's not that the court declared the right doesn't exist. The, the new court has made a mistake and thought that that previous court, that precedent declared only that the right was not clearly established. So same thing for parties challenging evidence. Um, if you treat a deferential precedent as non-deferential, that gets worse for the party challenging the evidentiary decision. The other way, it gets better for the party challenging evidentiary decision, and so on and so forth for patents as well. So depending on which way you make that deference mistake, if you, if you confuse one type of precedent for another, you can move the law one direction. You do it the opposite way, you move the law the other direction. So this can, and, and the point is that these mistakes can compound one another. You move the law once, now you've got a whole new set of law, lots of cases being decided under that law. Court makes another deference mistake, you're going to move the law again, possibly in the same direction, possibly in a different direction. 
So this raises the question, which direction is the law going to move? How are we going to know which way the law is going to shift? Well, the direction that the law moves will depend on the number of deference mistakes that the court makes in each direction. You know, number of mistakes they make um, that are beneficial to the party trying to assert a constitutional right, or number of mistakes they make that are harmful to the party trying to assert a constitutional right. And the number of mistakes is just the opportunities to make a mistake, the number of precedents out there that you could be reading, multiplied by the likelihood of making a mistake. So you can sort of look at these numbers across these various cases. Opportunities for mistake, there are many, many more de novo criminal procedure cases, cases where we're just asking, does the right exist, than there are habeas in section 1983 cases where we're asking, is the right clearly established? So that, makes, that means lots and lots more opportunities to make mistakes that favor parties trying to establish constitutional rights. Many, many more abuse of discretion evidentiary cases than plain error evidentiary cases. So again, more opportunities to make mistakes favoring parties trying to get evidentiary decisions overturned. Um, many, many more clear and convincing evidence patent cases that arise in the context of infringement than there are uh, cases that come directly from the Patent and Trademark Office that are preponderance cases. So that means many, many more opportunities for mistakes that disfavor people who are trying to challenge or invalidate patents. So that's the opportunity side of it. And then likelihood of mistake. Well, you've got to have some kind of a theory about what causes courts or their clerks to make deference mistakes. Um, I have two theories. One of them is what we call the majority effect. And it's basically that you think that everything is the type of case that you're used to seeing. So if you're used to seeing cases where they're just asking, does the right exist? You think that everything is a does the right exist case, and you don't stop to check to make sure that it's not a is the right clearly established sort of case. Also possible is the non-deferential uh, effect. You might just assume that every case you see involves no particular deferential standard of review. That every time it's just, you know, whatever the lowest standard is. So in the patent context, that would be preponderance of the evidence. Or in the, um, in the criminal procedure context, that would be just, you know, a de novo does the right, right exist sort of case. These effects pull in different directions in different areas of law. So in patent law, they pull in opposite directions. The majority of cases are the non-deferential cases. So the majority effect and the non-deferential effect uh, go opposite ways, or sorry, the, excuse me, the majority of cases are deferential cases, so the majority effect and the non-deferential effect go opposite directions. In constitutional pr criminal procedure, they pull in the same direction, and that means that's bad for people who are trying to assert constitutional rights because parties are much more likely to make a mistake and think that you've got a highly deferential precedent. So that should be intuitively obvious to you guys. Just think about that. What are you more likely to do to see a case where the question is, is the right clearly established? and mistakenly think that it's a case where the court is asking, does the right exist? Or are you more likely to see a case where the court is just asking, does the right exist, and mistakenly think it's a habeas or 1983 case where the court is asking, um, is the right clearly established? Probably many, many more of the former, because you're just sort of conditioned to see that former type of case. And sure enough, when we looked for deference mistakes, we found lots and lots of the former and basically zero of the latter. Um, Ditto for evidentiary cases, many, many more of the lower standard, the abuse of discretion cases. So that's, again, probably bad for parties trying to assert evidentiary rights. So, you know, in the end, uh, we don't know. It's, we'd have to do a lot more work to figure out exactly which of these types of mistakes dominate, exactly which way the law might be moving. We've, you know, we've found a lot of examples, but I wouldn't say we've, at, you know, tabulated all the data properly. But 
there's at least the possibility that the law could progressively move, you know, slowly and steadily over time if courts make these mistakes over and over again and the mistakes accumulate. Okay. Last slide, possible solutions. What might be done about all this? What could we do to eliminate these deference mistakes? Because the point of all this is not just that a court's going to read one precedent wrong and then maybe come to wrong, one wrong decision in one case. The point is that as mistakes accumulate over time, the law can actually shift and shift for no other reason that people are just making plain old mistakes. Okay. First possibility is you could get rid of deference regimes. You could just say, all right, no more clear and convincing evidence standard, no more clearly established rule for constitutional cases, no more plain error standard. Just adjudicate everything under the same deference standard so you don't ever have these cases reaching the courts under two different standards. It's possible. I mean, that would solve the problem. But, you know, those standards exist for real reasons. Like, they exist for functional reasons in the law. We sometimes think that we ought to be more deferential in one situation than we are in another. So that would be harmful to eliminate those kinds of, case, those kinds of uh, standards. Another possibility is you could require dicta about the non-deferential outcome. So let's suppose you have, you're a court and you're asked to decide whether a constitutional right is clearly established. We could require courts in that situation to say not just whether the right is clearly established, but if it's not clearly established, would that court have voted that the right exists if it were open to them as a matter of first impression? What would that court have done? So then every decision will have all the information in it. So the next court that comes along might be much less likely to make a mistake. The problem with this is that I think that even though judges and their clerks are you know, wonderful, talented, intelligent people, I think that they're human beings nonetheless. And it's very, very hard for human beings to hold sort of contradictory ideas in their heads at the same time. I think it's very unlikely that you'd get a court to honestly say, well, we don't think the right is clearly established, but if we were given this case as a matter of first impression on our own, we would vote that the right does exist. You know, people just don't like to do that because it, it creates tension in their own minds. It's a matter of what's called motivated reasoning in the psychological literature. So we think that these courts would all engage in motivated reasoning, and they would say, not only is the right not clearly established, but we would say that it doesn't exist. Or not only is that patent valid under a clear and convincing evidence standard, but it would be valid under a preponderance standard as well. Not only are we going to uphold the district court's decision about the evidence under a plain error standard, we would uphold it under an abuse of discretion standard also. That's why the particular examples I showed you guys where the court is sort of confessing that it might have done something different under a different standard, that's why I consider those cases so um, remarkable. Uh, and then last, and I think, again, this is maybe the, so I'll return to where I was at the beginning. This is like the least sexy solution possible. I think, we think that it might be valuable just to increase the awareness of the deference standards that are being used in precedence. So think about when you're citing a case using the blue book. You know, you're citing a case, you write down uh, in the citation the federal reporter citation, the volume number, the page number, maybe the pin site, the name of the court, Eighth Circuit, the year 2003, and then maybe you include a parenthetical that says um, something about the case that you think is relevant. If you were forced, in addition, to include a parenthetical that listed the standard of review or burden of proof in the case, so you cite the case and then you say, clear and convincing evidence, or you cite the case and you say, preponderance of the evidence, in a parenthetical afterwards, and if that were just sort of a matter of good blue-booking practice and everybody did it, courts law students, professors, everyone, 
it would be hard to cite a case without learning what that deference standard was in that previous case. You couldn't use precedent without making sure that you understood what the standard of review or the burden of proof in that precedent was. And that's the trick, right? If you are actually looking at the standard of review, if you have to go, comb back through the case and figure out what the standard of review is, um, that might give you a much better idea of what you're supposed to be doing in your case and how that precedent relates to your case, how you can use that particular precedent in your case without making this sort of deference mistake. So I guess I would close by saying um, I don't really know why deference mistakes exist um, uh, except that people are careless. But I guess a part of me um, kind of wants to blame like Lexis and Westlaw for it. Because in the old days, it used to be, you know, if you read a case, like you were reading a case from the beginning of the case. Uh, by the way, when I say the old days, this is long before me also. So uh, I'm neither that old nor am I saying that I was above this. Um, but you know, you had to read a case from the beginning. Now, when you guys pull up a case on Westlaw or Lexis, you've got all those key site uh, headnotes at the top of it, all these little um, links that jump you down to particular parts of the case that might be interesting to you. And what are those links jumping you down past? They're jumping you past the standard of review or the burden of proof section, the part of the case that actually lays out what standard the court was applying in that case. And so I actually kind of think that it might be electronic research and electronic citation that's driving these sorts of deference mistakes. So I guess our fourth solution could be, you know, get rid of Westlaw and Lexis and go back to the world of paper, but that is too radical and too pain-inducing to ever begin thinking about. Okay, so uh, I will stop uh, and ask if you guys have any questions. Yes. You know, it's a good question. I mean, I guess I want to hesitate to say anything definitive because we, ha we just haven't tallied numbers of mistakes systematically. I just can't tell you there were 173 mistakes in the year 2000 and 164 in the year 1999 or whatever. I will say we had a really tough time finding any deference mistakes from before 2000. They're all sort of from the modern era, at least the ones we could dig up. Now, there are, there are a lot more cases in the modern era. So that's part of it. But um, it might be that they are a phenomenon of the internet research era and that if you go back before the year 2000, you're just less likely, less likely to find them in some way. And I should say, by the way, um, on this point, my co-author, Lisa, um, confessed to me that she made a deference mistake while she was a law clerk uh, and like miscited some case and it was and it, you know these things can be outcome determinative it was like really important precedent for the case that they, her judge was deciding um, and she said that her co-clerk caught the mistake and I think in our paper there's a footnote that says you know one of the two of us made a deference mistake while we were a law clerk that's just to protect Lisa but just so you all know it was her not me. <laughs> Other questions? Yeah. So Doc. following up on that, did you know any, uh, particularly in the, in the uh, criminal cases, yeah. any particularly egregious case where some defendant uh, really had the rights violated because of one of these, or on the contrary, where some enterprising lawyer managed to catch one of these things and, and make the law work in his client's favor? You know, we didn't, it's, it's, you don't find cases where the lawyer caught it, at least looking at the cases themselves. You know, if we had gone back and read all of the briefs, then we might have found instances where lawyers were catching these mistakes and really helping themselves. Um, but just reading the case, you know, no judge is going to say, in an earlier version of this decision, I made an egregious error when citing a precedent, but I was corrected by a lawyer and now I know the truth or something like that. Um, in terms of egregious cases, I mean, the example that I gave you guys is, is one of them. Um, you know, the, um, 
the, the issue in this case, which was whether you're uh, entitled to a jury trial, in particular sort of civil, com- a civil commitment is where you're being locked up, you're being deprived of your liberty, but um, it's not for criminal reasons, maybe because you're insane or something like that. Uh, and the Eighth Circuit says you have no such right. That's a pretty big deal, you know. I mean, to take away someone's liberty without affording them a jury trial, it's you know, something that we don't usually do in the United States. And this court was sort of very hesitant. And they said, well, look, you know, we think that what's going on here is really pretty bad, but it's not a clearly established right. And then these next cases, which cite back to it, just sort of say, eh, no right. You know, the Eighth Circuit's already answered this question for us. We don't really need to think about it. Um, and that is the state of the law. You know, there is no circuit split right now about that particular question. So there are cases like that where uh, it sure looks like the first court gets to it and makes a decision, and then everyone else just makes an error after that, um, and it has a pretty egregious outcome. Paul. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question, and it's entirely possible. And we spent some time in the paper, I think, wrestling with whether we think deference mistakes are always accidental or whether some of them can be deliberate or not. Um, so I think it's entirely possible that courts are just, yeah, strategically misreading precedent so as to reach some new outcome that they want to. And as I said, I think that that behavior can be particularly insidious just because it gets laundered. You know, one court might say, I want to move the law, so I'm going to strategically re- misread some precedent. And then the next court, you know, court number three that comes after them, so court number two says, I want to move the law, I'm going to strategically misread court number one's precedent. And court number three comes along, and if court number three doesn't bother to trace that line of precedent backwards or investigate the issue for themselves, if they just look at what court number two did, now all of a sudden, You've, uh, you've laundered the deference mistake. Nobody's ever going to find it. So I think it's possible that that's going on, and I think it's a particularly insidious thing for courts to be doing because they are obscuring from everyone exactly what led to the legal change, how well supported that legal change was, and so forth. Um, and that's a problem. You know, that, that hampers other courts from developing the law in different directions of their own. And of course, that's one of the reasons why we have many different federal courts of appeal. We want them all to develop the law independently on their own. And maybe we would like the idea that sometimes they'll disagree and then the Supreme Court can resolve it. If one court's hiding what it's doing, it's going to obscure and inhibit that development. Uh, yes, Ms. McClintock. If, 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 you're a, if you're a judge or if you're a litigant? Um, I guess I would be interested in, I guess I started asking about a judge and then I changed Okay. Well, I mean, the base, it's sort of the same answer for both. I mean, courts, you know, courts of appeal, all courts are able to overrule their prior decisions. Um, sometimes they might need to engage in a special procedure like taking the case en banc where all the judges hear it. But one way or another, they're always able to overrule their, their earlier decisions. And so if you're a judge who thought an earlier decision was mistaken because of a deference mistake, or if you're a litigant who thought that, you can always try to unwind the whole thing by saying, you know, look, your honor, you're being guided here by you know, precedent four, and precedent four is based on precedent three, 
and precedent three is based on precedent two, and precedent two is based on precedent one, but it's completely misreading precedent one. So this whole line of precedent that you are drawing upon here, it starts out with a big error, an error that was decisive in that case, and you've got to undo the whole thing. Um, and by the way, I should add, you know, I'm supervising a bunch of uh, law review journal comments um, this year, and I actually have a student making a very similar argument, unprompted by me, I should say, about a whole line of precedent on the Fourth Amendment, where he says, look, that's all based on this, you know, precedent that was decided five cases ago, and that case was decided wrongly, so the whole thing is wrong, and it should all be unwound. I think the problem is that these precedents have power. They have, they're sticky. They have staying power. You know, that, that is stare decisis. Once the precedent's been decided, it's got some weight to it. It hangs around. And so if, you, if the mistake was made two days ago and you catch it immediately afterwards and you tell a court about it, that's, that's one thing. But if you're trying to unwind a line of precedent that goes back to 2003 and has now encompassed 30 cases in the interim, that's going to be a lot harder to do. And I think a court's going to be very un unwilling to take that sort of step. So it's going to be hard for a litigant to persuade the court, and it's probably going to be hard for any single judge who thinks it's all just wrongly decided to persuade the court that way as well. Yeah? No, we have never seen an instance of unwinding. I mean, I think that part of the problem is, so here, I'll go back to this example. Um, there are lots of courts that considered this issue after Poole versus Goodnow, that 2003 case, and just didn't cite Poole versus Goodnow and didn't cite Henry Sargent, didn't cite those cases. I don't, we don't find any, any court that looks at this issue and says, oh, and by the way, there was a gigantic mistake made a few years ago when these people were looking at that precedent. I think that judges are just too polite for that. I think it's considered really gauche to go out there and say, oh, and by the way, you know, all these other judges made this disastrous error, and now we're going to be the white knights to fix it. I think that they just say, we're doing something. We're going to go in a different direction. Or they just avoid citing the, pre the precedent entirely, or they ignore it, or something like that. They try to not be involved in criticizing one another. So I haven't seen any sort of direct cases of unwinding, although in theory they could happen. Uh, it could certainly happen. I should also say, I mean, again, these things get laundered really quickly. You know, think about how frequently cases are being decided. You know, the Eighth Circuit's deciding half a dozen cases every single day. And so very, very quickly, a deference mistake gets laundered into something where you never notice the deference mistake. So you'd have to really, if you were a law clerk, and you, to catch a deference mistake, you'd have to really dig in um, and start reading not just the most recent cases, the best cases that you want to cite, but go back and read way back in time to be able to catch that deference mistake. And, you know, I don't think people have the time or energy or interest in doing that. You know, we, I should say, in our, in our, um, for our paper, we had sort of a theoretical idea that these things might exist before we ever found one. And then we went back and started looking for them. But if you're not really looking for them, you're not really going to stumble on them very much. And I think that that's a lot of what's going on with courts now. Possibly. I mean, it would have to be some pretty sophisticated data mining because it would have to know, you know, all the standards of review and burdens of proof that matter to you and care about and have to tell you all of those. But in theory, right, I mean, it might be that, um, you know, it, it, every time if you were using Westlaw and every time it, you um, wanted it to 
you wanted to cite a particular case, it would give you not just that case, but a whole line of cases that preceded it and all of the relevant information from all of those cases. The issue is just that um, it would have to know what the relevant information was for you, and Westlaw may or may not be good at figuring that out. And so now what we're talking about is, hey, you know, law clerk, all you want is one little tiny citation, and we're going to give you a gigantic spreadsheet of, you know, the 30 cases that led up to it. I think people are going to be reluctant to go in that direction. Yes, in the back. It was very, um, I mean, it was like sort of painstaking grunt work. We would, um, we would just go back and we'd find, uh, let's say, a, clear, uh, a clearly established case like Poole versus Goodnow, a case where the court says this is clearly established. And then we would just look at all of the cases that cite it in the future and we'd read them to see if any of them were misreading it badly. And, you know, sure enough, we found lots of those examples, but by no means every one of them. You know, for every case where there's a deference mistake, there are 10 or 20 or something, some very large number where there's no deference mistake. You know, this is not the majority of cases out there. But yeah, we just went back and looked for good candidates, um, you know, like, like Poole versus Goodnote, and then just looked at all the cases citing it to see if anyone would make that error. I will say, when we first got started on this enterprise, this was my, co uh, my co-author's idea, was to go and do a search like that. And I said to her, that is going to take us a million years and we're never going to find anything. And she says, let's just try it for a day and see what happens. And within the first hour, we had found a dozen deference mistakes or something like that. I mean, it happened so much more quickly and easily than I imagined. And it made me wonder, you know, if we actually had some kind of software that would just search all of the federal reporters for deference mistakes, how many would we be able to pull up um, if we could just run that search? Because we found a lot by hand quite quickly. Yes. Yeah. So patent law has moved a ton. Um, patent law has become much more favorable to patent owners and much more unfavorable to people who are trying to uh, challenge the validity of a patent. And constitutional criminal procedure has moved a lot also. It's become much more unfavorable to people who are trying to assert constitutional rights under the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendments. So that was part of the reason why we thought these might be good candidates as well, among the many areas where uh, we could have looked just because those are places where the law has moved quite a lot and people are looking for an explanation. Now, I mean, the disappointing part of this is I can't tell you of the movement that we've seen, of the really tremendous movement in the law over the last 20 years, I can't tell you how much of that is due to deference mistakes, how much of that is due to different views of the law, how much of it is due to changing ideologies among judges. You know, there are a million different factors. So I can't say, you know, ours is 17%. Um, this is sort of step number one. I think somewhere down the line, we'd love to be able to say, okay, this accounts for 17% of the change versus less. But we do see an enormous amount of legal change in those areas over the past couple of decades. Questions? Yeah, let's get to yours. <laughs> Um, so say more about that. In other words, well, go ahead, you say it. So you're saying that there are judges who have maybe like 95, I don't know if that's because in the case of the case of the well, first of all, some of these courts are already specialized courts, and they're usually specialized in the underlying area of law. So, uh, 
let's just um, let's see here. Okay, let's just take patent law for example. Um, so you know these patent cases are all being decided by the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals, which is a specialized court that only handles patent cases. And the court was created so there'd be a court that was expert in patent law questions, deciding questions of invalidity. So they're really good at deciding invalidity questions. The problem is that they make mistakes when they're trying to uh, look at past precedents and figure out the standards that those cases were decided under. I think it would be crazy to then take the Federal Circuit and split it in half and say, okay, you guys get invalidity decisions under the clear and convincing evidence standard, and you guys get invalidity decisions under the preponderance standard. Now we're just sort of duplicating work. We have two expert courts trying to develop expertise in exactly the same subject matter area. It's just that they're going to get different. The only thing that will differentiate the cases they get is the standard of review. That seems like a little too much. Uh, that seems a little, like a little too much differentiation and too much waste of time and effort just to cure this problem. You know, that's why I say like, I think we can cure the problem in totally boring ways, like forcing people to change the way they cite cases and include additional parentheticals and things like that. It's partly to avoid that sort of uh, drastic step. Yeah. It's, it's in there already. That's the thing. I mean, the vast majority, if you go back and read federal cases, you know, the vast majority of these cases, the first section is called standard of review. And there, the judge or the clerk lays out what the standard of review is. Those of you who are 1Ls, when you start writing your next Bigelow uh, assignments, the first section in that memo or that brief is going to be standard of review. And it will be there as plain as daylight. The, the problem is not clarity. The problem is that the next person who comes along and reads that case skips right over the standard of review and starts reading the meat of the case. Um, and they ignore the standard review. So clarity and sort of that disclosure issue, that's just not the problem at all. The problem is getting people to actually focus on it. That's why I think, you know, it would be nicer if every time, you know, everywhere you looked at the case, you know, here's a mat, here, since we're doing it with software, you can imagine anything, right? So you could imagine, there you are, you're scrolling through the case on Westlaw, and in the margin, the whole time, there's a gigantic, you know, flashing sign that says, this is a clearly established case, this is not a does the right exist case, or this is a clear and convincing evidence case. It is not a preponderance case. You know, I, I don't think Westlaw wants to put it there because it sounds kind of ugly and clunky. Um, but you could imagine all kinds of software solutions that would force people to acknowledge the standard review at issue instead of just skipping over it. Our problem is that they all too readily skip over it. Yeah, it's, that's a really good question, um, and I, I don't feel like I know the. I don't feel like I have a great answer to it. Um, you know, I guess I'd say a couple things. Number one, in across the broad swath of cases, even federal courts of appeals cases, the quality of lawyering is not that high. Um, so you know, you guys will all think, well, boy, if you're arguing a case in front of a court of appeals, like that's got to be a great lawyer. Only the best lawyers get to do that. When you get to be appellate clerks, you will learn that is in fact not the case, and all kinds of terrible lawyers who uh, write their briefs in crayon will show up in your courtroom as well. 
So part of it is I just think that the lawyering is bad. So I mean, that raises a possible question. You know, there, we, we, I would love to do research and find out if deference mistakes systematically favor parties who have better lawyers, let's say, because those lawyers, maybe they're strategically introducing them, or at least they're, um, you know, they're not making those mistakes and they're, they're catching the other side's mistakes. So part of it, I think, is just let's not overestimate how good the lawyering is, even in a system that ought to operate you know, under market principles. The second thing is a lot of these citations, a lot of precedential citations get introduced by judges after the briefs have already been turned in and without any input from the lawyers. So in a lot of cases, you know, you can imagine a case like Poole versus Goodno, like my Eighth Circuit um, clearly established case, where neither party bothers to cite Poole versus Goodno because they realize that case was decided under a different standard, so it can't be relevant here. And then the judge or her clerks are just sort of sitting around, and they find Poole versus Goodno, and they think, oh, well, this case decides everything. And so they just put it in. They just throw the citation in, and they announce that the case is done with, and it's over. And now... Um, you can, if you are one of the litigants, you can complain afterwards. You could file a motion to have the case reopened or reheard because the court cited an earlier case that doesn't stand for the thing it said it stands for. But those just never work. Those get dismissed, you know, 99.9% of the time. After that court has decided your case, you're pretty much cooked. Um, and so I think it's possible that that's a lot of what's going on also. These are just errors introduced by judges and their clerks without interference from the attorneys, though I would not put it past bad attorneys to do the same. So, like, what do you have in mind? Um, so, for the pool case, mm-hmm. would there be a legislature that enacted a statute that says in civil compliant cases, um, they should always be like their jury trial? Oh, sure, absolutely. I mean, you know, in the vast majority of areas of law, if the legislature thinks, thinks that the law has gone off the rails, the legislature can always pass a law and, and change things. I, I mean, the problem is, and this gets back to an earlier question, you know. I think it's hard enough to unwind these deference mistakes if you are arguing to a court and you're saying, look, you know, Your Honor, your court five years ago made the following mistake and it became part of your law, but really it was always based on an error. That to me is hard enough. You know, you're arguing to people who live in your world and care about how precedent is used and what standards of review mean. You know, you want to go turn around and talk to a legislature and say, boy, you know, Congressman, I really think we need to change the law here because it's based on a deference mistake where a court misread a standard of review. Like, you're out of the office before you get the word mistake out of your mouth, I think. <laughs> so, you know, it's obviously the case that if the law, if the deference mistakes just push the law so far out of whack that it's, it just becomes blatantly bad policy, a legislature might undo that. But I think that the very fact that you have a, a set of law that's being driven by a deference mistake, that's not going to be enough. That kind of mistake is not the argument you want to make to a legislature. The argument you want to make is, this law is really bad and hurting people, so you ought to change it. The deference mistake is just, uh, that, by that point, it's just on the sidelines. It's irrelevant to that issue. Yes? How would defining the fact the famous Judge Posner thesis that common law moves toward efficiency? Yeah, well, I mean... I think that depends on, so, you know, Posner thinks, well, the law, it's common law, judges have incentives to get things right, so the law will get better and better over time, move toward efficiency. I mean, that depends on everyone basically kind of being a rational actor and doing the right thing and not making obvious mistakes. And so I think we would say this is sub-rational behavior, um, and it is, a, you know, it is a countervailing force. It's going to push against it. This is one of, I would say, one of the many reasons why the Posner hypothesis is probably not right. And the law probably does not inexorably move towards being correct. 
Anything else? Okay, thank you all very much. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.